Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Rick Allen Ross, and he published a book back in 2014. The title of that book is Colts Inside Out, How People Get In and Can Get Out. And it has 183 four-and-a-half-star reviews, so it's very well-reviewed. But Mr. Ross is a very well-known figure in uh, the analysis of Colts. He's really one of the leading experts, and he's consulted with the FBI, the BATF, as well as the governments of Israel and China on the topic of cults. He's a private consultant, lecturer, and cult intervention specialist. He's been qualified and accepted as an expert court witness in 11 different states and the U.S. federal court. He has worked as a professional analyst for CBS News, for the CBC, or the Canadian Broadcasting Company, and Nippon and Asahi in Japan. He has also appeared in 13 documentaries, and he is the founder of the Cult Education Institute, and its website is www.culteducationalloneword.com. So we're going to cover some subjects today, but uh, I'm really delighted that he agreed to the interview. And he uh, was involved in, I've done interviews with Frank Perlato about Nexium, and he has some personal background with them, but we're going to just cover whatever we want. So Rick Allen Ross, are you there? I am here, William. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your name, can you talk how you got started uh, in this subject or matter or this field and uh, what led you to write the book, Colts Inside Out? Well, I started in 1982 when my grandmother, who lived in a Jewish nursing home, uh, that nursing home staff was covertly infiltrated by a group that targeted the elderly. And when I found out that my grandmother had been confronted by one of these people who worked as a nurse's aide, I became an activist, an anti-cult activist in Phoenix, Arizona, which led me eventually to work for a social service agency and an educational bureau and serve on committees for the Jewish Federation of Phoenix and also for the Union for Reform Judaism in New York. Uh, by the end of the 80s, I was uh, doing interventions, first through uh, Jewish Family and Children's Service, and then later on my own. Since then, I've done over 500 interventions in the United States and internationally. And I also have testified, as you pointed out, as a court expert. I wrote the book Cults Inside Out. Uh, initially, uh, it was uh, the Chinese language rights were purchased by a publisher in Hong Kong. And I would tour uh, China and uh, talk about the book and, uh, you know, participate in various workshops and, and uh, conferences regarding cults. Uh, the book also was translated into Italian by a publisher in Italy. So the book's purpose for me was really to create a kind of compendium about cults. Uh, so the book has a history of cults going back to the 70s. It starts off with groups like Charles Manson, uh, the Unification Church of Reverend Moon. Scientology has a dedicated chapter. And uh, the group Falun Gong, which is very was very prominent in China, though the leader now is operating here in the United States, also has a chapter in the book. And the book uh, not only covers the history of cults, but what makes them tick. There's a chapter on defining what a destructive cult is, 
uh, in a core definition, and then discussing the process of coercive persuasion that cults use to gain undue influence over people, and then explaining my intervention approach and offering case vignettes so people can see how that works. And also there's a chapter on recovery. Right. And that is a disputed issue is like, what is the definition of a cult? And you really break that down. Can you break that down for the audience, how you define a cult? Well, William, I think what I did was I was able to identify what I would call the nucleus for a definition of a cult, a destructive cult. And, and almost any definition I've seen, and I point this out in the book and detail it and footnote it, uh, intersects these three core characteristics that were first identified by psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton in a paper titled Cult Formation that he presented and was published at Harvard. Uh, those three core characteristics are number one, and this is the single most salient feature of a destructive cult, is that there is an individual who becomes an object of worship. And that leader is totalitarian. Whatever he or she says is right is right. Whatever they say is wrong is wrong. And people in the group follow the leader and the, the leader is the defining element and driving force of the group. Second, the group has an indoctrinational process uh, that some have called brainwashing or coercive persuasion or thought reform that can be identified that culminates in the undue influence that the group has over people, which can be seen by people acting against their own best interest, but consistently in the best interests of the group and the leader. And so you can tell that there is this dynamic of undue influence. And then finally, that the group hurts people. Otherwise, it would be a benign cult. And I do believe that benign cults exist that have an absolute leader, have a very intense indoctrinational process, but don't hurt people. So that harm that is done varies by degree from group to group. Not all groups are equally destructive. So there are groups like uh, Jonestown, led by Jim Jones in 1978, that ended up with almost a thousand people dead in Guyana. Uh, that would be the most extreme expression of a destructive cult, or Charles Manson and his followers killing people. Uh, but many destructive cults simply exploit people for free labor. They take advantage of them financially, uh, and they may not be as destructive as other groups. So I think we need to recognize that there's a continuum that some groups are much more destructive than others. Right. And you kind of include a lot of these different cults. There's, you just list so many and then reference those. Jonestown, like you said, Sinanon, the Moonies, things like that, uh, or groups like that. And you also reference Robert J. Lifton's Thought Reform and the Psychology, Psychology of Totalism, very important book. Can you talk about the personalities of these leaders of cults? I think that they have certain personality characteristics. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I've, I've met with cult leaders like Keith Ranieri. I dealt very closely with David Koresh. I knew him as originally as by his given name, Vernon Howell. Uh, I think that it's fair to say that they almost always uh, exhibit what would be called uh, narcissistic personality disorder. They are intensely narcissistic people who uh, typically lack 
or or find it incapable to express empathy, have very limited sympathy, are very ego-driven, uh, seem to feed on the worship and adulation that they receive from their followers. And, and many would say that some of the most extreme cult leaders, this has been said by a number of mental health professionals, that they uh, are psychopaths, uh, in my opinion. And I think this has been uh, reiterated by a number of people. Uh, Charles Manson was a psychopath. David Koresh, psychopath. Jim Jones, psychopath. And Keith Ranieri, who I met and dealt with for many years, in my opinion, would fit the profile not only of NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, but also I think he is a psychopath. And can you talk about, you have a, a long history with uh, Keith Ranieri. Can you talk about where that started and, and what happened with your uh, the legal process with him? Well, I was approached by a family uh, in New Jersey that had uh, three of their children involved in Nexium, uh, two daughters and one son, and uh, a son-in-law. And they were very concerned about what was then known as executive success programs. I had never heard of the group. Initially, I thought it was a large group awareness training seminar selling company. I wasn't sure that it was a destructive cult. It wasn't until uh, more investigation was done by a PI, a private investigator, and also by me digging in and looking at the group's uh, the group's uh, training and understanding what made them tick, that I realized that this really was a group that worshipped Keith Ranieri, uh, the founder and leader. They called him Vanguard, and they called his immediate subordinate, Nancy Salzman, prefect. Uh, uh, your listeners should know that Keith Ranieri is now sentenced to 120 years in prison, and he was convicted of multiple felonies, such as sex trafficking, tax fraud, racketeering, and so on. But for many years, he got away with it. Uh, people would leave the group and talk about what, what they saw that was criminal, and they would try to report him to authorities, but nothing was done. I did uh, a series of interventions. I got three of the people the family was concerned about out of Nexium, uh, but one son remained. And I think that had a devastating effect on the family. One of the young people that I got out of, of Nexium through an intervention gave me the study notes for their seminar series. And it was when I read those notes, I realized that a lot of what Nexium taught was just basically ripped off from Scientology, Ayn Rand, uh, Landmark Education, uh, which is another large group awareness training uh, seminar selling company, and, and Amway, who Keith Ranieri had uh, once been an Amway you know, distributor. Right. And so, so what um, the family did was they hired uh, two uh, mental health professionals, a forensic psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist, to read the study notes and evaluate what these training seminars were really all about. And they both came to the same conclusion, that it was about coercive persuasion, manipulation, and that it was very negative and cult-like. 
I then publish their papers at culteducation.com. And I was sued by Keith Ranieri. He sued me, ironically, given that he plagiarized Scientology and others. He sued me for intellectual property right infringement, trade secret violation. And this litigation dragged on, William, for 14 years. Wow. And it was sh shortly before his arrest uh, that the case was dismissed by a federal judge. But I went through uh, mediation meetings with Ranieri, uh, depositions with Ranieri and Salzman, and and uh, it was a long and winding road. And dur during those 14 years, I would frequently hear from people that left Nexium, and I was uh, very much uh, wired into what was going on and how things kept getting darker and worse and worse as time wore on. Yeah, really dark. It got super dark. I mean, there, well, he was arrested two years ago, I think. But you, I think that the date of at least the decision was from the Second Circuit was 2004. So when did the when did the litigation start? The the litigation started, I believe, around. Um, I'd have to look back, but I, I would say around 2003. 2003. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, and so, it, it it dragged on for, as I recall, 14 years. And what was your personal impression of Keith Ranieri when you sat across from him in negotiations? And uh, that uh, he didn't smell very good, that he was poorly dressed, uh, that he was unkempt, uh, that uh, he had no real emotional response, kind of a flat affect. And when I disagreed with him at one point, when we were going through this mediation, all these lawyers were in the room, uh, he got very upset uh, because, he, you know, he kept saying to me, uh, you know, you don't understand. And he started to explain his philosophy, which was he called rational inquiry. And I, I looked at him and I said, look, I don't care about your philosophy. I'm not interested. The only reason I'm here is because you're suing me. And we're in a mediation meeting to see if we can come to a settlement. And I proposed a settlement and he, he would just not even acknowledge it and start going on preaching. Finally, I looked at him and I said, look, as far as I'm concerned, you're a cult leader. You're, you're attempting to manipulate and uh, uh, micromanage people for your own benefit. And uh, I think your, your philosophy is just so much word salad and gibberish. I'm here about the litigation. And at that point, he really kind of got red-faced, was very angry. And like most cult leaders, you just cannot disagree with them. They're always right. They're relentlessly right. And when you disagree with them, they get very upset. And so after that, he went into a deposition. And uh, I sat there for hours as he answered questions in the deposition. And I, can't, I came to realize that this guy had never really had a real job and that his, he was basically a grifter who was out to con people and he became ultimately a cult leader. Yeah, a very dark one too, very abusive. I think that he was trafficking kids under the age of 14 too. So there was a kind of, a, I think, a pedophilia charge too in his... And on his litany or list of criminal, uh, 
you know, in his criminal complaint. But both when your litigation, both the district court and the appeals court ruled in your favor. So they said, I think that that's, and that's a court record too. So it's very important to show that even if the ESP participant who signed a non-disclosure agreement, even if they had it, you were not bound by that either. Uh, right. So that's the way it worked out. So you, there was no kind of uh, financial penalty during your litigation, correct? Well, uh, no, William. Uh, look, if I had had to pay my attorneys who work pro bono, including uh, uh, in, including uh, the Berkman Center at Harvard and uh, the law, law firm of Lowenstein Sandler, Peter Skolnick, uh, and, and others who helped me endlessly, if I had had to pay the bills, it would have been $2 million. Ranieri spent $5 million. That, that, that is the estimate, which he got from the Seagram's heiresses, the Bronfman sisters, you know, Claire and Sarah Bronfman, who kept giving him money right and left. I mean, eventually they would give him reportedly over $100 million, which, 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 they, which they could afford. I mean, they were heiresses to a multi-billionaire, their father, Edgar Bronfman uh, Sr., who was heartbroken over their involvement with Nexium and how it adversely affected their relationship until he died. Uh, and I'll, I'll say this, you know, Claire Bronfman, she, she is now serving a prison sentence for enabling Keith Ranieri for so many years. Uh, Keith Ranieri will never get out of prison. Uh, he's he's going to be there for the rest of his life. And because he raped children, two minor children that I'm aware of, he's in a protective custody unit for sex offenders. Because if he were in general population, uh, they would not take kindly to the fact that he abused children. Yeah, those are the, the lowest part of the totem pole in any jail is the pedophiles. And so, I mean, so Ranieri is really just one element of, you have this long list of so many cults in the world. What, uh, you know, this kind of idea of brainwashing, you talk about so many of these, Zimbardo, Milgram, these cults all have this kind of uh, kind of punitive control uh, approach to these people. Can you ex expand on that? Well, I think the foundational piece is milieu control, as Lifton calls it, which is control of the environment, control of information, uh, socially isolating people. Uh, the most obvious would be a cult compound where they live isolated from society, which happened with Jonestown and the Waco Davidians and their compound outside Waco, which they called Ranch Apocalypse. Uh, then there are people who are socially isolated. They only associate with other cult members. They may share uh, living arrangements as roommates. This was the case with Nexium. There were many people that moved to Albany, New York to be near Keith Ranieri, and they would become roommates, live together. And then they would basically become a kind of subculture in which they had little to do with people outside of, of Nexium, uh, particularly particularly if the family or friend criticized Nexium or raised troubling questions about what was going on. Like, why are you giving them so much money? And uh, how is this affecting your, your work? And how is this affecting your life otherwise? Uh, if someone uh, questioned a group, 
uh, like Nexium, they would be ostracized. They would be seen as uh, uh, what Ranieri called a suppressive person or an SP, which is also a terminology that was used uh, and is used by Scientology, which he copied from Scientology. So what these groups do is they isolate people, they control to a large extent, they're socializing who they talk to, who they meet with. They, they tell them what is good information. Uh, for example, uh, in Nexium, they were told that uh, anything I had about Nexium on the internet, on in, in, uh, in the archives, the culteducation.com archives, uh, was to be completely ignored, that this was just garbage, uh, that it was produced by an SP, uh, that there was no reason to read it or even re respond to it. So in that way, the leader, Ranieri, was controlling information. And this is what these groups do. They control information. They apply negative dismissive labels to people who criticize them. And uh, they basically get people to open up to them, to confess, to tell them what their, their most uh, sensitive uh, problems are, their pain, the source of their ruin, so to speak, in Scientology. And, and by doing so, they identify how they can manipulate people. And Keith Ranieri was very good at this. And Scientology actually has a regimen for this, which is called auditing, where people sit and confess. Uh, they answer questions to a person in Scientology called an auditor. And during this process, they hold metal cans that are connected to something called an e-meter, that Scientology says uh, records the response of the negative reactive mind. But in reality, it's a, a galvanic response measuring apparatus that really measures nervous tension so that the auditor knows what makes you nervous in regards to the questions that he or she is asking. And then they drill down in that area. For example, they might say, how are you doing with uh, work? And you say, oh, I'm doing fine, but the needle moves uh, to, to show nervousness in your response to that question. Then the auditor is going to say, well, tell me more about what's going on at work. And they're going to drill down in that. And this is uh, the process that many of these groups use. Uh, Lifton calls it the cult of confession. And, and there's an assumption in the group that everything the group says is true, must be true, and cannot be questioned. And this is what Lifton labels the sacred science that cannot ever be scrutinized in any meaningful way. So what you find in all of these groups called destructive cults is the same methods being used to dominate people, to manipulate people. Right, so they own it. So Scientology keeps a file on you. Ranieri kept a file. He asked them to give him their most secret stuff. And then he kept it. I forgot what he had a term for it, but uh, it was very interesting. And, and in your chapter five, you talk about the secret of surrender. So once those people surrender to that higher authority or something, then they're just, uh, I think Lifton called it the psychology of the pawn. They just become obedient. And I think Milgram used word in your book, the perils of obedience was Milgram's uh, experiment. So that was, yeah, really remarkable how these people come into it. Can you talk about, the, the long history of cult intervention work and where it started and how it progressed? 
William, I have a chapter in my book uh, that is devoted to that. And it started with Ted Patrick uh, back in the 70s. He was called Black Lightning. Uh, Ted is an African-American who invented deprogramming. And he did this in response to his son's recruitment in the Children of God, one of the worst cults of the 20th century. Uh, that's now called the Family International. They're known for sexualizing and abusing minor children. River Phoenix was in the group, and in one interview with Rolling Stone, he said that he lost his virginity at the age of four, which is not uncommon in Children of God, which uh, set the leader, Moses David Berg, abused his own daughter, his granddaughter, and, uh, and, and his stepson. Ricky Rodriguez, who later committed suicide. So Ted Patrick wanted to get his son out of the children of God. And and he did. And he invented a process called deprogramming, where you would examine how you got in uh, and and compare that to coercive uh, persuasion techniques, to thought reform, as defined by Robert J. Lifton, uh, who wrote the book Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, and to Edgar Schein's book uh, Coercive Persuasion. And then you would begin to say, well, if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, is it a duck? I mean, your group is using identifiable methods that correlate with these books, these seminal books about uh, persuasion techniques. Um, what does that mean? And if your group is behaving like other cults, does it, doesn't that mean perhaps your group is a cult? And so what Ted did was through a question and answer process, reactivate the critical thinking of people that he worked with. And then other people built upon that. Uh, and I myself came in in the early 80s and I had not met Ted Patrick. Uh, I have spoken to him since the publication of my book by phone. Uh, he, he's now in his 80s uh, and no longer working. But, but all of us that do intervention work, basically we built on Ted Patrick's initial foundation, uh, that basic process. Right. It was kind of like a Socratic method, just asking questions and trying to drill into people's brain. And you mentioned Steve Hassan, Joe Zimhart. Uh, I interviewed Joe on my podcast about his book, Santa Fe, Bill Tate and Me, How an Artist Became a Cult Interventionist. So you can hear about his story, him being sued as well. And I think you said Ted Patrick got sued two dozen times. With oh, yeah. Ted, Ted, Ted Patrick ended up going to jail because he continued to do involuntary interventions, as I once did, as Joe Zimhart once did, as Steve Hassan and many others once uh, would do these involuntary interventions. We, we gave it up because of all the legal embroilments that occurred, that you could be sued endlessly, that you would spend all your time in court and be unable to help anybody. So I think uh, Joe and I and, and Steve Hassan and other people quit doing involuntaries for that reason. Uh, though I have tremendous sympathy for families right now that call me and say, look, I'd like to do an intervention with my son or daughter or my husband or my wife or my, uh, my parent, but I can't because they're isolated in the group and I have no access to them. And the only way that I would ever be able to do an intervention would be through an involuntary process. 
and of course, no one will cooperate. And in in my in in my field, uh, intervention specialists to do that type of intervention. So these families that are uh, being victimized by very extreme cults have nowhere to turn. They have no alternative. Uh, they can they can only hope that one day their loved one has some doubts, may step outside of the group. Uh, for a period of time, and then maybe they might be able to do something. But there are so many families that call me that they really have no alternative. Right. I think you said it's very expensive to do deprogramming, and there's not many professionals left, so it's a kind of a dwindling field. And this cold activity is still, if not present, it's getting bigger in some senses. Um, you dedicate the book to two women who were in the group Falun Gong. Can you talk about the two women, what happened to them in this group Falun Gong? Uh, yes. Uh, the two women, uh, there's the mother and daughter, were both in this group called Falun Gong, led by Li Hongzhi. Uh, this is a man who claims to have supernatural powers, uh, supernatural discernment. Uh, he is the the spoke spokesperson for the higher power, a typical profile of a, a, a destructive cult leader. Uh, in China, there were protests by Falun Gong because the government started to crack down on them because they would make uh, false claims that they could heal people from disease and people were dying because they weren't getting proper medical attention. Uh, I myself would get complaints about this in the United States and also from Europe, uh, from people outside of China who likewise refused to get proper medical care because of their devotion to Li Hongzhi and Falun Gong. So the Chinese government, uh, unlike the United States, does not recognize the freedom of religion in the way that we do. They see religion as a privilege rather than a right. And that if you abuse that privilege by hurting people, the Chinese government reserves the right to declare you uh, an outlawed religious group, which is what they did with Li Hongzhi and Falun Gong. Uh, Li would eventually flee China. He now lives in the United States. Uh, he has a couple of very expensive homes. Uh, he's a multimillionaire. I, I think it's fair to say that he controls a financial empire within the United States and Canada that exceeds $100 million. Uh, and he has a huge compound outside of Deer Park, New York. And then he has a, a traveling dance troupe called Sen Yun. And, and so in China, going back to uh, what happened to this mother and daughter, they were part of a group of people that went to Tiananmen Square I think it was 2001 or, or thereabouts, and they doused themselves with uh, with gasoline or fuel oil, and they lit themselves on fire. Some of them died. Uh, the mother and daughter, Chen Gao, uh, they were horribly disfigured. They lost their hands. Uh, it was a horrible, horrible tragedy. And I would later have the opportunity to interview them in China. And part of those interviews are in the chapter on Falun Gong. Uh, the mother, uh, Hao Jin, is now dead. She's deceased. Uh, her daughter, Chen Gua, is still alive. She lives uh, in northern China, in Kaifeng. And I visited her there. 
um, she'll never fully recover from from the horrible burns and the many surgeries that she endured as a result of her devotion to Falun Gong. But um, it's it's uh, it's it's the most horrible abuse of any cult group that I have ever personally witnessed. And their tragic story, I felt, needed to be talked about because so often people have the wrong impression about Falun Gong. Uh, and rather than looking at it as a destructive cult, they see it as a group that was persecuted in China and they don't understand the background. But I can tell you, as someone who did an intervention in Europe to help a young man who was diabetic and was not taking insulin and had almost died because of his belief in Falun Gong, that the concerns of the Chinese government about Falun Gong are valid and that Li Hongzhu, in my opinion, is a con man and he has taken advantage of many people to enrich himself. And he had, I mean, um, superficially, it's just kind of uh, practitioners of kind of health practices, but he supposedly, you're tying into some kind of energy that he connects to and heals you. So he promises these people that they will get younger, the wrinkles will disappear. So there's a lot of uh, elements there that, I mean, I think that you wrote in your book that China said that it was an evil cult or described as an evil cult, banned in 1999. Yeah. Um, Right. So um, we're kind of coming to the end. We're here 35 minutes. Do you mind to take a few questions from uh, the listeners? Sure. Okay. Let's see if I can find one. Do you know a guy by the name of Bob Meehan? That, Does that ring, name sound familiar? Bob that Meehan? that rings, a, rings a bell, but I can't quite place it. Gotcha. Okay. So he might be involved in some kind of uh, one of these cults like AA. A lot of these people in the chat are talking about AA as a cult. What are your thoughts about Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, they don't have a leader. I mean, uh, the the person who created Alcoholics Anonymous is dead. And they don't have an organizational structure. They're not asking people for money. Uh, I wouldn't regard it as a destructive cult. I would point out, though, that there are destructive cult leaders that exploit AA meetings. They may come in and try to find somebody that they can recruit. They may even become a sponsor uh, and manipulate AA for their own purposes. Uh, but I would not categorize AA itself as inherently being a destructive cult. Uh, they do subscribe to a higher power, but that higher power could be Buddha. It could be Jesus. It could be uh, the force uh, that is with you. Uh, it could be almost anything. I don't receive complaints about AA that are consistent with the complaints that I receive about destructive cults with identifiable leaders that are hurting people. Gotcha. Have you ever come across a cult that had any uh, connections to governmental intelligence agencies? That's one question. No, from no. I I think that there are there are conspiracy theories. For example, there are baseless conspiracy theories about Jim Jones, that somehow Jonestown was part of some experiment. That is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, there, these conspiracy theories are not true. Uh, and, and in fact, there was a, a period of time in the 1980s known as the satanic panic when people 
believe that there were all these satanic cults uh, that were never proven to exist, by the way, that uh, sacrificed babies, murdered people. And when the police investigated, they could find no forensic evidence. They could find nothing to substantiate these anecdotal stories told by su supposed survivors. So a lot of the calls that I get, I would say, William, uh, maybe as much as 40% uh, of the calls that I receive and email I receive are, are, are baseless. Uh, that is, people are claiming that there's some kind of cult chasing them, that this group is a cult and it's not. And uh, I spend quite a bit of time disabusing them of those notions. So I think it's, it's fair to say that a lot of cult accusations are not true and that people need to do the research to make sure that the group actually is a destructive cult before accusing it of being such. Well, one of the things that's popped up is the advent of the internet. What are your thoughts about online cult, online cults? I know you discuss it in your book. It's amazing. I mean, uh, in I originally launched culteducation.com in 1996, and since then I've seen that uh, these groups are proliferating online uh, on, uh, at a staggering pace and that it's possible to recruit people online, sustain a group online and get their money uh, through, for example, PayPal. And you do indoctrination through your YouTube channel, through your videos. People follow you on Facebook. They follow you on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you have podcasts to your people that they download. I mean, it just goes on and on. So we now have people, uh, for example, Teal Swan, who has been called a cult leader, uh, who has hundreds of thousands of people following her online and has become very, uh, I think, quite wealthy uh, and doesn't actually meet with most of the people that she does business with. And there are many, many cult leaders like this. Yeah, I've heard of her. Yeah, she's very influential, kind of a new age teacher, I believe. And uh, um, yeah, so it's Bound by Blood. I don't know that. Somebody's talking about it. Have you ever heard of a cult called Bound by Blood? Blood? No, but I learn, I, learn, I learn about a new cult almost every day. I mean, it's just constantly these new groups. You know, the group could be as few as a dozen people. Uh, it could even just be two or three people following a leader. I mean, Keith Ranieri only needed two followers, Sarah Bronfman and her sister, Claire Bronfman, to get $100 million. And so, so, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a big group, though there are some groups like Scientology, the Unification Church, Children of God, a group called 12 Tribes uh, that may have thousands of people in a particular group. But there are many groups that are less than 100. Uh, for example, there was a group recently covered, which I dealt with quite, quite a bit, led by Amy Carlson called Love Has Won. And they never had more than 100 people. And uh, David, uh, that were physically following Amy, though she had many, many followers online. And David Koresh, uh, that group uh, really was a very small group. There were less than 100 of them in the compound when uh, Koresh set fire to the compound and they all died. So a group can be quite small. 
Right. And I mean, you've seen so much in your, I mean, talking to Koresh before 1993 and Keith Ranieri, what do you see in the future of uh, kind of the situation, the culture of cults? Well, I see it becoming increasingly uh, online, that recruitment is no longer necessary face-to-face, that people, anyone that has a smartphone, anyone that has an electronic device that connects them to the online world is uh, a potential target of a group. And all you have to do is do a search, and based on an algorithm, you may pick up where a group has meta-tagged some of its information online, and, and that may be the bright, shiny thing that gets you on the hook. And then you get reeled in. And make no mistake, uh, these groups are very good at what they do. They're predatory. They're very good at manipulating people. And they're very practiced. So when the novice comes in contact with them, unaware of what's behind uh, the the bright, shiny thing and the hook that is the the bait-and-switch hook that gets them in, uh, they are not prepared to deal with the recruitment techniques and the coercive persuasion uh, process of these groups. So I think the the future is more and more people getting hooked and being reeled in online. Yeah, I think you're right. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap up the interview? Um, I would also point out that in my book, there's a chapter on abusive controlling relationships and also an example, a case vignette of a abusive controlling relationship, relationship situation where I did an intervention. Uh, I think when people are looking at abusive controlling relationships, for example, uh, Tina Turner, the famous rock singer who was completely controlled by her husband, Ike Turner, for a period of time, or the allegations against O.J. Simpson, or for that matter, uh, uh, R. Kelly, who is now facing criminal trial. Uh, Abusive controlling relationships are very much like a cult. You have a leader that is the controlling partner, and you have someone who has been gaslighted, who has been manipulated, and is being controlled, often socially isolated, by their controller, who is the victim. So a lot of people, when we see people we know and we care about involved in abusive controlling relationships, that can be very cult-like as well. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, great information there in the book. Also, I was surprised to see an Amway intervention too. So that was a whole chapter on Amway, group, guru group intervention, large group awareness training, things like that. So there's a lot of coercive environments. Uh, great interview. Where's the best place to get the book? Uh, the best place is to go online, amazon.com. The book is available in paperback and be downloaded through Kindle. And there's also an audio book available. Audio book available. Great. And then your website is www.culteducationalloneword.com, correct? That is correct. It's probably the largest archive of its kind online. Launched in 1996, people will find thousands and thousands and thousands of documents and articles about various groups, all all organized under various group pages so that they can drill down and find out about a group that may be approaching them and learn about its history before making a commitment and getting involved. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. Check that out. Again, www.culteducation.com. Title of the book, again, is Colts Inside Out, 
how people get in and can get out by Rick Allen Ross. Thank you so much, Mr. Ross. Thank you, William. All right, take care. Okay, so that's 